Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Right. And right now today, we have Mark Derry, ladies and gentlemen. Here we go. Uh, well, thank you for that suspiciously terse introduction. I'm delighted to be here. Um, Joan Didion said that she fled New York uh, because she did not have an opinion about everything. And I come to you from New York, heavily burdened with opinions. Uh, but I grew up in San Diego, um, so I'm, I'm not entirely um, bowed by the weight of my own gravitas. The great thing about Los Angeles is that it is a city that does not take itself entirely seriously, whereas New York is crippled uh, by a foot-draggingly leaden seriousness. Um, and uh, so LA suits me well. Uh, since I've always set the bar rather low for myself, aspiring not to Baudrillardian status and cultural criticism, uh, but perhaps uh, only to the status of, let's say, uh, Dennis Miller for Derridians. Um, I want to just speak extempore for a few minutes, and then I will read a selection to you from the book. I must not think bad thoughts, drive by essays on American dread, American dreams, which includes, among other novelties, essays on the pornographic fantasies of Star Trek fans, <laughs> a beard-pulling inquiry into whether or not Hal in 2001 was gay. You'll have to read the book to find out. <laughs> Facebook as Limbo of the Lost, George W. Bush's fear of his inner queer, never far from the surface, the theme parking of the Holocaust, the homoerotic subtext of the Super Bowl, the hidden agendas of IQ tests, Santa's secret kinship with Satan, transpose the words, the letters, um, the sadism of dentists, Hitler's afterlife on YouTube, the suicide note considered as a literary genre, the surrealist poetry of robot spam, Lady Gaga, the church of euthanasia, toy guns and the dream lives of American boys, and the polymorphous perversity of Madonna's big toe, <laughs> as featured in a Calvin Klein ad. But tonight I come to you um, with the considerably more sober and brow-furrowing subject of the zombie apocalypse. Uh, the history of consciousness program at UC Santa Cruz is starting it, is revving its dissertation engines on this subject even as we speak. Um, but before I get into that, I want to speak extemporaneously a little bit, as I said, uh, because I've learned from academic symposia that nothing is a surer chloroform than the sight of a man in a suit reading at great length from his book. Uh, there's usually a uh, mad, wall-eyed stampede toward the exit signs about half hour through it. So I'll try to keep this to about 30 minutes tonight. Um, but very quickly, I wanted to talk a little bit about how San Diego and Los Angeles actually made me the writer that I am and the cultural critic that I am, despite the fact that my life has been one gradual series of fleeings from San Diego. Uh, first, I grew up in Chula Vista, referred to in the genially racist parlance of my 70s adolescence as Chulawana, uh, indicative of the uh, matting horde of uh, brown folk on the other side of the border that uh, 
white racist suburbanites thought were going to inundate them any second. Uh, then I went to school in Los Angeles at Occidental from 78 to 82 where I loafed contentedly in the grass trading witty sallies with a young Barry Obama. Um, I was some species of democratic socialist and he was, well, whatever he was and whatever he is now, it remains inscrutable to me even low these many years later. Um, and then, um, still not quite far enough from San Diego, that Mojave of the mine where the intellectual life goes to die, I went to San Francisco and spent a year there and then finally fled to New York and never looked back for fear that I should be turned into a David Hasselhoff-shaped pillar of salt. Um, but be that as it may, I actually love uh, Los Angeles. Baudrillard in his book America is thoughtful on the technological sublime and says that there is nothing like the incomparable thrill of a night descent uh, into Los Angeles. Uh, and to see the firmament of light spread out beneath you uh, as a sort of unreconstructed uh, Ballardian, as in J.G. Ballard, the British SF author. I personally love the sensation of uh, springing uh, straight from the plane, uh, only hours from New York, into a rental car and banking and swooping up the incomparable clover leaves of the city. It's all I can do to keep from pulling a Christopher Walken and keeping my pedal accelerated and attaining geosynchronous orbit, just lifting off one of these uh, freeway flyovers. Um, but I really must commend Los Angelinos on uh, the self-sacrificing uh, decision to immolate the environment and build the world world's largest monument to the automobile. The pharaonic grandeur of these things makes Ozymandias look like a garden gnome. It's absolutely astonishing. Um, so San Diego, I think, made me a kind of provided as part of the air I breathed as a kid a kind of a Marcusean, felicitous, critical distance, a kind of a philosophical alienation. Um, it was a kind of an intellectual isometric exercise, uh, surrounded by strip malls where there was not a bookstore to be found that wasn't a Bible bookstore, uh, dug in, rock-ribbed, paleoconservative, Goldwater Republicans, um, you know, when Nixon ran against JFK, a landslide for JFK in every sane part of the country, except San Diego, overwhelmingly for Nixon, you know, 98% or something. Um, I'm making that up. It was it was staggering win for Nixon. Um, and San Diego has a very peculiar kind of a intellectual gene pool. Around the turn of the century, uh, elderly Americans would go there to take the cure, TB, sanitaria, that sort of thing. Uh, so much so that Edmund Wilson, the New Yorker critic, wrote an essay called The Jumping Off Point, which is one of very few cultural critiques of San Diego ever written. Well, that and Anchorman, of course, uh, which, which I consider to be a profound cultural text, well worthy of doctoral dissertations and scholarly scrutiny. But uh, anyway, the jumping off point is about how all these despairing geriatrics um, who weren't cured of their diseases would leap into the sea. So San Diego once enjoyed the ignominious uh, distinction of being the, like the suicide capital for the elderly of America. <laughs> so there was that. Then when it became the home of the Pacific Fleet after during World War II, of course, that provided a kind of a seedbed for conservatism. Uh, you know, active duty Navy swabbies, as they were known, retired Navy. Um, and then, you know, the Bible Belt, Dust Bowl Drifters, Okies, people from the great flyover, um, you know, sort of flat earth fundamentalists. A lot of them came to Southern California. Kerry McWilliams writes about this in his astonishing history of the area, Southern California, an island on the land. Uh, but a lot of those folks were, you know, not terribly well educated, um, and they provide the kind of cultural DNA for the religious right that rises out of megachurches and so forth. In fact, there's a fabulous megachurch in San Diego whose pastor is, has no real legitimate reason to wear the reverse collar. He just rolled out of bed one day and decided he was a preacher. Uh, but he's a former charger linebacker, so which makes him a form of clergy, really, and I think that's a very legitimate argument. So 
San Diego shaped my oppositional style of mind, and then I came to school in Los Angeles. And I'll just read you a very brief passage from the book, the introduction, that gives you a sense of how that left a legible impress on my intellectual development. And I begin with an epigraph uh, that consists of two quotes, one of which gives the book its name. The first is, from a very early age, perhaps the age of five or six, I knew that when I grew up I should be a writer. I knew that I had a facility with words and a power of facing unpleasant facts. George Orwell, Why I Write, the essay every undergraduate is compelled at gunpoint to read. I must not think bad thoughts, I must not think bad thoughts, the facts we hate. X, from the song, I must not think bad thoughts, the quintessential LA band in my book, more so even than The Doors. At some point during my long march through the dream of the rude, the fairy queen, and the metaphysical poets, a protracted agony, relieved for English majors in the early 80s by such thrillingly up-to-the-minute fare as the great Gatsby and still crackling with the shock of the new Allen Ginsberg's howl, I rose to object in class to a curriculum dominated by the greatest hits of the late Cretaceous. It was the 80s, for fuck's sake. Why weren't we reading, say, Naked Lunch? After all, the Burroughs novel was published in the year of my birth, 1959, and written by the grand old man of the Beats. Hadn't they insinuated themselves into the canon, albeit by tunneling in through the drains. The answer my professor, at Occidental, patiently explained was that only an academic with a career death wish would be rash enough to assign a text that hadn't been rendered safe for classroom dis dissection by historical distance and scholarly embalming. It made strange music in my head, this admission of intellectual timidity given the zeitgeist. I was attending college in LA where punk rock was the soundtrack of youth culture, a squall of suburban angst and political disaffection. I must not think bad thoughts by the band X nailed the apolitical vacuity of the decade when greed was good and the grandfatherly velociraptor in the Oval Office mused on Good Morning America that, quote, the people who are sleeping on the grates must surely be homeless by choice in this best of all possible worlds. Up to the minute and in your face, punk didn't hesitate to deconstruct the world around it with a chainsaw. It occurred to me with X buzzing in my mind's ear and my professor's words hanging in the air that it's a writer's job as well to think bad thoughts, to wander footloose through the mind's labyrinth, following the thread of any idea that reels you in, no matter how arcane or depraved, obscene or blasphemous, untouchably controversial, irreducibly complex, or even preposterous on its face. The ethos of thinking bad thoughts isn't synonymous with the willful perversity of Christopher Hitchens's contrarianism or with H.L. Mencken's lifelong devotion to spit-roasting the sacred cows of the bourgeoisie, as he called them, or with the nothing is true, everything is permitted libertinism of William S. Burroughs, or with the liberatory cynicism of punk rockers like X, or with Orwell's ability to confront hard truths without flinching, yet it contains a tincture of each. Thinking bad thoughts is above all else, a refusal to recognize intellectual no-fly zones. In America, that translates as the rejection of bread-in-the-bone puritanism, bourgeois anxieties about taste, the self-censorship routinely practiced by academics, fearful of offending tenure committees, and blinkered by elite assumptions about what constitutes serious subject matter, and scholarly style. The craven capitulation of Hollywood and the news media, phobic of truly controversial content that might scare off advertisers or upset middle America's mental digestion. Now by truly controversial content, I don't mean jackass five or um, you know uh, plastic surgery disasters or whatever that reality television show is called. Um, I mean intellectually controversial content, content that really ca would cause viewing audiences to blanch in horror and stop in their tracks, incendiary ideas that challenge the founding assumptions of official fictions or popular pi pieties. By way of example, take your pick from Noam Chomsky's top 10 list of things you can't say on Nightline in the documentary Noam Chomsky, Manufacturing Consent. Um, 
he's asked, well, what are some of the things you can't say on television? One of the problems, of course, is that to pontificate, you have to be able to shrink your wisdom down to sound bites and squeeze them between two commercials, anything that requires explication, because it's counterintuitive. Obviously, you have to sandbag your assertions with material facts. That is sort of rolled out a priori. Uh, but there are other things that so go against the grain of received truth um, that they're virtually verboten. And in his off-the-cuff list, he says, well, here are some of the statements you'll never hear on Nightline. For example, that the biggest international terror operations are the, that are known are the ones that are run out of Washington. Or that if the Nuremberg laws were applied, every post-war American president would have been hanged. Or that the Bible is one of the most genocidal books ever written. <laughs> or that education is a system of imposed ignorance. The politics of thinking bad thoughts, I believe, stands foursquare against the faux populist demagogues, the brown shirt pundits, the evangelical know-nothings, the Tea Party lumpen of the anti-intellectual right, but also against the Stalinist thought police of the left at its most inquisitional, scouring every soul for counter-revolutionary tendencies, those ineradicable pockets of racism, sexism, sizeism, ageism, ableism, and lookism, lurking in even the most ideologically pure of heart. A quote from Adrian Rich, when my dreams showed signs of becoming politically incorrect, no unruly images escaping beyond borders, then I began to wonder. So that's what going to school in Los Angeles and the discord, the disjuncture, the dissonance between uh, life in the Arcadian glades and the Olympian halls and the, the sort of, um, you know, Socratic discourse of Occidental College, which was wonderful in many ways, but there was this yawning chasm between that and the frenetic sort of chainsaw guitar and mosh pit, you know, Dionysian fury of the punk clubs. And it seemed to me that the life of the mind was not responding to that. Okay, so that's the extempor part. How's everyone doing? Okay. Blood sugar slumping. Do I have a little while longer? Okay. Um, I usually advise people to bring a sack lunch to my lectures. Um, okay, so I actually just have some some largely random images of zombies just to get you in the just to get you in the mood for the zombie apocalypse. Um, and so I'll I'll largely be reading this um, a hopefully rather um, endurably brief uh, essay, um, and and extemporizing a little bit on it, but not terribly much. It's called Dead Man Walking. Um, in our day of the living dead, the reanimated are everywhere, from pride and prejudice and zombies, Seth Graham Smith's inspired mashup of the zombie myth, and Jane Austen's Regency novel of manners, probably all of you familiar with this book, um, to The Walking Dead, a graphic novel about humanity reduced to Hobbesian brutishness in a post-apocalyptic America uh, overrun by the undead, and now a hit AMC series, um, to the splatterpunk video game Left 4 Dead and its many uh, shambling progeny, Call of Duties, Black Ops, Zombie <laughs> spin-off, Dead Island, and the oddly titled Deadlight Fear Yourself. Um, the zombie, I believe, is a polyvenant revenant, a bloating signifier that has given shape, ultimately, to repress memories of slavery's horrors, to white alienation from the darker other. Uh, both of those refer to, you know, white zombie or I walked with a zombie, respectively, from uh, 1932 and 1943. Cold War nightmares of mushroom clouds and mega deaths. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, obviously. Uh, the post-traumatic fallout of the AIDS pandemic, um, and also in movies like 28 Days Later and books like the Max Brooks's faux historical World War Z and oral history of the zombie war, um, those more recent iterations of the zombie myth, I believe sort of body forth or give shape to free-floating anxieties about viral plagues and bioengineered outbreaks. Um, so these days, visions of a zombie apocalypse look a lot like, to me, like the troubled dreams of an age of terrorism, avian flu, and H1N1, when viruses leap the species barrier and spread via jet travel into global pandemics seemingly overnight. 
which may be why the infected, as they're called in both 28 Days Later and Left for Dead, move at a terrifying jump cut speed, unlike their lumbering, stuporous predecessors. These are zombies for the age of sort of digital speed up. In the post-war decades, as suburban sprawl and mall culture metastasized across America, Hollywood cast the zombie as the decaying face of popular ambivalence toward amok consumerism. Implacable consumption machines, the mall-crawling dead of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, 1978, literalized the infantile, infantile psychology of consumer culture, uh, which is famously noted for its oral fixation, its insistence on instant gratification, and its I shop, therefore I am sense of self-worth indexed to how pricey your status totems are, the sheer bodaciousness of your McMansion or your super duty Ford F-150 long bed pickup. The insatiable orality implied by market capitalism's redefinition of citizens as consumers, and I love the Madison Avenue cynical sobriquet for the average consumer. Ad men refer to consumers as wallets with mouths, uh, <laughs> which I think is a very zombie-esque image. Uh, I think that's instructive. But now that the econopocalypse has thrown millions out of work, triggered an ups spike in homelessness and eaten the brains of consumer confidence, always spelled with three R's. The zombie has undergone a role reversal, incarnating American fears that the Republic is a shambling shadow of its former glory, left for dead by the near meltdown of the financial system. I just keep changing these images uh, randomly to sort of uh, add a counterpoint to my remarks. Um, so the zombie has undergone, I believe, a kind of role reversal incarnating American fears that the Republic is a shambling shadow of its former glory. Um, left for dead by the near meltdown, as I said, of the financial system. Zombies are the resident evil of an economy whose moribund state confronts us everywhere we look in a landscape littered with, and I think these, these sort of terms from popular parlance are very instructive. Um, often the cultural unconscious, the cultural psyche, knows what's going on better than official culture does. So some of these sort of terms of art are very instructive. Some of you may have heard the term dead malls from malls that are largely deserted. Um, they, there's been kind of a, a draining away of consumers when People aren't really able to shop because of their plummeting incomes or unemployment. Um, you may have heard the term ghost box, which refers to dark, shuttered, big box outlets. Um, or zombie stores, which is retailers forced by dismal sales to reduce their inventory to its bare bones, confronting the shopper with the rather dispiriting sight of endless racks of nothing. Uh, which in turn, uh, the ironic consequence of which is that their emaciated stock and empty floor space scare customers away all the more, accelerating the store's death spiral. Paul Krugman, the NY Times columnist and uh, Nobel laureate economist, uses the term zombie economic policies for the um, sort of austerity shock treatment that Angela Merkel wants to administer to the EU. And he believes that these are sort of shambling, walking dead economic philosophies that have no, there's no historical what evidence whatsoever that they work, but they sort of totter on regardless, sustained by, you know, IV infusions from the Heritage Foundation and Ron Paul or whatever. Uh, so, so <laughs> there's no Republicans in the audience. <laughs> um, I'll start my car carefully. Uh, zombies represent America hitting a very low bottom as we witness the spectacle of consumer capitalism transforming itself into a feudalistic dance of death, um, says the cultural critic and horror movie historian David J. Skull. During the summer of 2009, politicians and political pundits alike started hurling the Z word as an all-purpose epithet while the economy collapsed and healthcare reform sputtered. Zombies are, in essence, creatures who have already faced Sarah Palin's death panels. Uh, the better to escape brain-dead politics and faceless corporatism. Having cannibalized all their home equity and foreclosed our future, zombies have become everyman avatars that are traded in the forward-looking, if audacious, message, I must eat you to live, settling for, I must eat you just to stay dead. So in recent decades, um, <laughs> this is all 
big block quote from Skoll. In recent decades, says Skoll, the zombie has been a cartoonish lampoon of consumer capitalism, but in the current economic mess, all the gathering themes of depersonalization and disenfranchisement have come to a critical mass, he contends. The image of real estate representing the living or the haves besieged by the ravenous dead, the ultimate have-nots, has long been a staple of zombie narratives and never more concise cultural statement than at the present. Now in the 1930s, at least one reviewer of the film, White Zombie, largely perceived to be about racial anxieties. I call it a kind of post-colonial, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, but um, at least one critic, according to Skull, saw in White Zombie reflections of breadlines and displaced workers, who were of course very much in the headlines in those days as well. Um, today's zombies, he says, have an unprecedented in-your-face rawness that seems to embody displaced rage about gut issues, pun very much intended, like food, shelter, and health care, the don denial of any of these leading to living death or death itself. And you might also, you know, just as a parenthetical, you might also make some critical hay with the popularity of post-apocalyptic or dystopian YA young adult novels, The Hunger Games being only the most obvious example. Uh, but they seem to, to be some sort of post-traumatic reaction, both to economic collapse, but also to um, the looming threat of environmental collapse. Um, er, but I think it's important to note, uh, as I do in this essay, that every age has its totemic monsters. And so the point I'm making when I sort of groaningly, punningly say, punning on the semiotic notion of the floating signifier, a symbol that can be repurposed for a wide variety of meanings. I call zombies bloating signifiers. Um, the point is that, that um, I think zombies can be ventriloquized for many meanings. They're multivalent or polyvalent. They're sort of densely sedimented with meaning. Not only um, sort of across the historical arc, right, diachronically, but synchronically in our moment, I think they bear a, a, a sort of, they're, they're almost like palimpsests. They're sort of overwritten with many meanings. Um, now, I'd, I'd like to sort of travel back in time for a moment and look at the prehistory of the zombie or some of the cultural DNA that might have contributed to the zombie or of which the zombie partakes. Um, and I love to read, um, you know, Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, not as founding fathers of the dismal science and the talking cure, but rather as gothic novelists, in the same way that I love to read Baudrillard and Virilio as sci-fi authors, and I love to read Don DeLillo, Ballard, and Burroughs as postmodern theorists. I think that these, these turnarounds work quite, not, quite nicely. It may seem glib, but try it sometime. Um, so, to that point, every age has its totemic monsters. Because he lived in an era, era of premature burials, resurrectionists, right, grave robbers, uh, post-mortem daguerreotypes, you know, those famous photos of babies posed on cotton with cardboard wings, you know, like little cherubim, um, table wrappers, spirit photography. When the air was thick with ectoplasm, Marx, the unparalleled master of the political Gothic, is fraught with this kind of imagery. I mean, you know, you think I'm sort of, you know, sort of stretching this to an airy thinness or overplaying this. Consider this. He opens the Communist Manifesto in a veritable dry ice fog, you know, straight out of Hammer horror films, uh, talking about a specter haunting Europe, the specter of communism. And Karl Marx's life, um, the scholar Francis Wien, a man after my own heart, suggests that more use value can be derived from capital if it's read as a work of the imagination, a Victorian melodrama or a vast gothic novel whose heroes are enslaved and consumed by the monster they created. Quote, capital which comes into the world soiled with mire from top to toe and oozing blood from every pore. I mean, not for nothing was, you know, Marx the greatest zombie gothic graphic novelist who ever lived before his time, right? I can't wait for the uh, Neil Gaiman version of this. <laughs> Um, so indeed, Marx's political economics teems with imagery straight out of Victorian penny dreadfuls like Varney the Vampire, uh, which was written in 1847. Um, and uh, uh. and be, uh, I'll come back to that. That relates to a theme I'll explore in a moment. But um, 
again, if this seems like overreaching, bear in mind that Marx famously loved Gothic melodrama. He devoured Gothic novels, you know, in between bench pressing the Grunries, you know, and toiling through the entire history of economics, you know. I mean, even history's greatest super brain, you know, it needs a few hours off. Um, and so, um, I can't recall if it was the castle of Otranto or what wet his whistle initially, but he quickly became addicted to the, uh, you know, Harry Potter serials of the day, many of which were uh, starred vampires. So let's look for a moment at his writing. You know, he talks of in Capital, of capital that vampire-like lives only by sucking living labor, of the bourgeois that Z that has become a vampire that sucks out wage laborers' blood and brains, that's in the 18th Brumaire, and whose prolongation of the working day beyond the limits of the natural day into the night only slightly quenches the vampire thirst for the living blood of labor. And almost hear him dipping his pen in, and a font of gore. Um, really, the video game of capital, I think, is long overdue. Um, today, gonzo economic commentators like Matt Taibbi take up Marx's tune. Describing the investment bank Goldman Sachs as a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Apparently not a believer in blank finds reassurance that they are doing the Lord's work. Um, as befits a nation whose haves and have-nots regard each other across a Grand Canyon-sized income gap that's yawning wired, wider by the minute, America's nightmares are haunted by vampires and zombies, the blood-sucking Wall Street elite, drunk on seven-figure bonuses, and the dead-eyed, bone-gnawing underclass. And I'd like to take a moment to distinguish between these two totemic monsters of our moment. You know, there's the vampire, of course, who's been unhappily pressed into service as the um, you know, hollow-cheeked uh, you know, David Bowie of twilight fantasy, uh, much to every vampire's horror. Um, and then there's the zombie, and it's sort of odd that these two creatures should pop up and dominate the troubled dreams of the American psyche at the same historical moment. I think it they bear closer scrutiny. So let's think about the vampire for a moment. The vampire, I would submit to you, is a symbol of a parasitic plutocracy. Always has been, emerges in times when income gaps uh, yawn wide. I mean, again, these characters are polyvalent, they're multivalent, they bear many meanings. So I'm not suggesting that's the only meaning they bear. But it's certainly one meaning that they telegraph very obviously. So the vampire battens on the tears and toil of wage labor and it has been a stock character in the demonology of class war, as I just said, at least since Karl Marx. Marx. Why? Well, with predictable perversity, America's winner-take-all culture has embraced the vampire as an aspirational figure. And why not? Whether a scion of old money with a continental accent or a conscienceless monster in tasseled loafers, you know, Gordon Gecko, chainsawing workers to bolster quarterly earnings, the vampire has perfect hair, a sommelier taste in type O and more money than God or for that matter Lloyd Blankfein. He's a photogenic poster boy for the new social Darwinism. Here where neoliberal capitalism is the official religion on par with Juchi in northern Korea and where the myth of the level playing field is impervious to fact, for example, most of you probably know these facts, that 80% of the nation's wealth is held by those in the top 20% of the income pyramid, or that the CEO who a decade ago raked in a mere 30 times the average uh, wage worker salary now makes 116 times that worker's income. In such a culture, nobody wants to be a zombie. Everybody wants to be a vampire. Dead on their feet, Dead on their feet, zombies began as a glassy-eyed metaphor for the plight of Hades' human chattel. Uh, forced to do the boss's bidding even in death. And it's really interesting, you know, a lot of the films about zombies trade in a sort of a peculiar racial currency, you know, that Edward Said would call Orientalism. They're sort of exoticizing the Haitian other and presuming that, you know, primitive beliefs, uh, you know, have been quarantined in the third world, unlike our perfectly rational embrace of the rapture, you know. Go down the highway here, you know, <laughs> 
seems like to me as a New Yorker, it seems like every 10th car is a sticker that says, in case of rapture, car will be driverless, you know. Uh, or, you know, it's not a child, it's a choice. Um, <laughs> so, um, the, the typical reading of films like the, the Wes Craven movie, The Serpent and the Rainbow, you know, or White Zombie, or I Walked with a Zombie, you know, is sort of through a racial prism. But there's another way to read them, it's sort of good Marxian economic determinism, right, which is that in his classic ethnographic study, Voodoo in Haiti, the scholar Alfred Metro underscores the parallels between the living dead and Haitian blacks under the colonial whip. So he looks at the economy of slavery, which is largely sort of written out of official film histories of monster movies. So the zombie is a beast of burden, I and mean, this should be sort of obvious, right? Um, which his master exploits without mercy, making him work in the fields, weighing him down with labor, whipping him freely, feeding him on meager, tasteless food, like Frankenstein, a working stiff with neck bolts for the emerging industrial revolution, uh, ready-made for the Fordist factory. Zombies are well and truly wage slaves. A solitary hunter, the vampire is well-suited to Ayn Randian fantasies of Promethean captains of industry, right, or architects. Uh, Self-made masters of their own destiny, they need no convincing on Ayn Rand's virtues of selfishness. Zombies, by contrast, are trade unionists from beyond the grave. A Heritage Foundation wonks worst nightmare of collectivism on the march. Sort of it's a demonic conjuration of collective bargaining, you know, inspired to, you know, uh, instill a thrill of horror in the governor of Wisconsin. The downsized and the disenfranchised jolted into action by class consciousness. Now, at the same time, yeah. Uh, these are images from the graphic novel, by the way, The Walking Dead, on which the uh, AMC series was, was based. Now, at the same time, the circular firing squad of angry white lumpen, a phrase I always put in initial caps, A, angry white lumpen, uh, emptying their political ammo clips at illegal immigrants, Nancy Pelosi, and the red menace and great beast ensconced at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, everything, in other words, but the structural injustices behind their actual economic woes. They see zombies as harbingers of a post-apocalyptic landscape overrun by Obamaniacs, where the embattled vestiges of what Sarah Palin liked to call real America make their last stand against an engulfing tide of border-jumping aliens, left-wing academics, and brain-eating libtards. And I want to see if I can... I have these images out of order. Okay, this is an image by James... Wesley Rawls, who's a dug-in survivalist and heavily armed sort of apocalypticist. He's written this novel. And, uh, oh, sorry. Okay. All right. Um, and I want to cherry pick, oh, here we go. Here's another image from white, the white survivalist community as well as merely the survivalist community. And they, do, they are not synonymous, I should be at pains to point out, although there's absolutely a subterranean corridor running between them through which you know, dark golems have been known to scuttle of an idle hour. Um, so you know, uh, here's a, one of these mock... Um, uh, what are the what's the uh, what's the term I'm searching for? Yeah, thank you. Motivational therapy posters, right? Uh, sort of self-help for survivalists, and so they've retrofitted it with this jokey tagline because those goddamn zombies aren't going to kill themselves. Um, here's another novel by Rawls, Patriots, a novel of survival and the coming collapse. So you have this um, devil's triangle, this infernal harmonic convergence of you know sort of American rugged individual frontier rough justice, you know, the justice of the hanging judge and the limp mob, lynch mob, our natural, uh, our national infatuation with the gun, uh, especially at a time when, you know, um, white guys with their mortgages underwater who've been, you know, outsourced and downsized, have been stripped of every totem of traditional masculinity, uh, gun sales spiral, you know, this is the only emblem of power you can cling to. Um, there are also a number of images um, on the right side of the political spectrum, not 
only among Aryan supremacists or white power people, but simply among people in the far right and survivalists that suggest that Obama and all of the infernal hordes that rally around him are a little better than zombies. And it's um, given rise to a kind of a minor genre of political humor on the far right. So, um, who are these people? As I delved into this to kind of take a core sample of the fungal unconscious of the Aryan supremacist right, um, I was fascinated by what I found. Stockpiling MREs and heavy weaponry, the survivalist fringe actually cannot wait to live in the America of I am legend, right? Because a dystopia is just an inverted utopia. It's an, it's an opportunity to wipe the slate and start over, right? And reverse, you know, centuries of gains for women, you know, people of color, gaze, you know, and restore the world, the imagined world of the frontier, you know, where a man's weapon was law and the white patriarchy ruled untrammeled and state-sponsored genocide um, was evident in posters for uh, bounties on Indian scalps. Um, and any of the darker others who got out of line would find themselves dangling from a convenient tree. Uh, so there's a lot, that's a lot of the subtext of this stuff. Um, so they feel that when our unwieldy duct tape democracy collapses into anarchy, we'll revert to the sociopathic utopia of the Western frontier, a happily uncomplicated time when every man, that is every well-armed white man at least, was a law unto himself, free from governmental meddling and moral ambiguities. Now the guy I mentioned, Jim Rawls, let me see if I can dial him up again. There we go. Uh, actually, there we go, that's even better. Um, and his fellow survivalists are digging in for an apocalypse straight out of Left for Dead. There is much talk on their discussion boards of hordes of zombies running rampant when, quote, the government fails. Contributor Michael Z. Williamson thinks a wicked-looking implement called the Dead-On Tools Annihilator Demolition Hammer will come in handy when the system crashes. I happen to have a photo of it. <laughs> I knew you'd... Oh, here's another Obama right change for the worst for the worst um, see if I can find this here okay it's as, as fate would have it predictably it's back near the beginning okay there we go that is manufactured by dead on tools it's the annihilator demolition hammer ask for it by name friends um, <laughs> will come in handy when the system crashes. Uh, and in a review of it written by contributor Michael Z. Williamson uh, over at survivalblog.com, um, where I have been a frequent, if un unnoticed, lurker, <laughs> although doubtless this will out me, um, quote, anyone with bayonet training, which is hell, I mean, it's got to be, you know, every other person in this room. Uh, you know, talk about setting the barrier low. Um, and anyone with bayonet training can grip this appropriately and hack through a crowd of zombies or heft it like an axe and use it on single opponents. And this is the marvelous thing, is that they never blink. I mean, it really, there really is a sort of a wonderful irony, sort of, um, you know, tongue-in-cheek, you know, ironic conceit here where they are obviously referring to the massing hordes of libtards as zombies, but they perpetuate this extended metaphor that the zombie apocalypse is going to happen any moment, you know, tongues firmly in cheek. An anxious reader with a heavily supplied, fairly secluded and defensible and very well-armed suburban outpost with several highly skilled sons for fire support writes in to wonder if he should secure a secondary retreat for when it looks as if our ammo is exceeded by the number of urban zombies or police state drones, same thing, invading the burbs, unquote. By zombies, a.k.a. the golden horde in survival, survival blog parlance, Rawls and his, his survivalist brethren mean the anticipated, they actually have a glossary, helpfully, on their site. And I thought to myself, what is all this talk on their discussion boards about the golden horde? And happily, there's a page right where they have a number of in-crowd words, uh, survivalist parlance, and one of them is golden horde, noun, right? Um, 
which is the anticipated large mixed, meaning racially mixed, uh, horde of refugees and looters that will pour out of the metropolitan regions. The horde trope, of course, has a familiar ring especially to anyone who's done post-colonial studies or studied the history of racism or of empire. Uh, because especially when coupled with suggestive adjective golden, it obviously echoes kind of demonic racist conjurations of yellow peril. We've heard it before in colonial whispers of rebellious coolies out on the edge of empire. And in the Turner Diaries, the racist classic written in 1978 by William Luther Pierce, a bizarre micro-genre, Aryan supremacist, science fiction. You know, there really should be an anthology for scholarly study uh, by Library of America, you know, hopefully with a yellow ribbon in it. Um, but the Turner Diaries was, of course, one of the pillow books of Timothy McVeigh, and two pages from the book were found in the ammonium nitrate-filled van or somewhere at the scene of the crime at the, uh, at the bombing. Um, but so we've heard this, this talk of yellow hordes in books like the Turner Diaries and its revulsion at the mongrel metropolis, that polymorphous horror of miscegenation and moral relativism. And I'm about to wrap up here, so I see the my host getting a little twitchy, uh, <laughs> reaching for the shepherd's crook. Um, um, so the found, there's a great, great essay by Rawls, who's actually quite a pithy, punchy writer. He's an interesting character. And he writes, the foundational morality of the civilized world is best summarized in the Ten Commandments. He writes in his Precepts of Rawlsian Survivalist Philosophy, a volume destined to take its place alongside Nietzsche and Lacan, I'm sure. Uh, and in it, he writes, the moral relativism and secular humanism are slippery slopes. The terminal moraine at the base of these slopes is a rubble pile of despotism and pillage or anarchy in the depths of depravity. Best to arm ourselves to the teeth, light out for the territories, and rebuild society in a blast-proof city upon a hill populated with people like us. Now, to Browning 35, that's one of the handles over at the Aryan Supremacist Board, stormfront.org, which is, if you can imagine, even further to the right than survival blog. I mean, these guys are straight out of California Reich. They're unabashed neo-Nazis. Although, oddly, they bridle at the use of that term. Um, they're act they think of themselves actually as mere advocates for white rights. Uh, <laughs> Because, of course, who, after all, has been more historically disenfranchised than the white male? Um, so to Browning 35 and the rest of the race warriors on the white supremacist website stormfront.org, the zombie apocalypse is a premonition of race war. And this character writes in, I've noticed recently that a lot of survivalists and preparedness freaks are big fans of zombie movies, where a small group of people test their skills against an onslaught of blood-sucking and brain-eating ghouls. For white nationalists, it's easy to translate non-whites into the role of the zombies, as they're certainly blood-sucking leeches who are overrunning and ru ruining our countries, and who in some cases are literally trying to prey on us and eat us. Do you remember that case a little while ago where that black guy in East Texas killed and ate his white girlfriend? I'll bet she didn't foresee him turning into a zombie and eating her. Then another guy, who goes by the name Crispy, <laughs> A participant like Browning 35 in Stormfront's discussion threads is locked and loaded for racial Armageddon. He writes, I'm a big fan of the zombie survival stuff. I've read the zombie survival guide by Max Brooks, as well as his novel World War Z. Yeah, but does he have this thing? You're virtually naked without it if you're an Aryan supremacist survivalist. Um, both those books were fun reads, but certainly lacking as far as hardcore survival goes. One must always remember that in a more realistic SHTF, Aryan parlance for shit hits the fans, situation, we will be facing armed opposition, not some mindless shambling horde, but it's still nice to imagine sitting on a rooftop all day with a boomstick popping zombie skulls. And now I arrive at my peroration at long last, shamblingly. Seriously, guys, 
Some of the mist reminds the assembled white nationalists that World War Z isn't any laughing matter. He writes, all fun stuff aside, I've always been a sci-fi fan and The Day of the Dead was a great semi-comedy movie, uh, except for that race-mixing crap. The non-whites are the zombies, complete with man-eating and crazed brutal behavior. It will be unleashed full bore when the economy collapses and the super depression starts. Just as zombies do what they do, the non-whites will show their DNA when the time comes. Count on it. They cannot do anything else. The wise are getting out of the multi-culty cities and setting themselves up with dependable compatriots, well thought out, hardened retreats, and lots of supplies. Now actually, as a man of the far, far left, I thrill to the idea that the the more deplorable aspects of our gene pool are quarantining themselves in, you know, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and heavily fortified redoubts and stockades. I mean, it really is sort of a do-it-yourself eugenics. Uh, <laughs> I move we just seal off the entire fucking state and come back in a hundred years and see what extended inbreeding has done to them. But that would be social Darwinist of me, and I know better. Although, look at the House of Windsor. Unfortunately for the Blood and Soil Gang, history teaches us that the war of all against all doesn't end at the barred gates of the Fuhrer bunker. It's only a matter of time after the chairs are jammed against the doors and the windows are nailed shut before the survivors succumb to power struggles and paranoia of their own. 28 days later, they're eating each other. Worse yet, you can't always tell us from them. Quote, eyewitness accounts describe the assassins as ordinary looking people, says a radio announcer in Night of the Living Dead. Aren't they always? <laughs> So thank you for indulging me. You've been a model audience. I know it was quite an extended chat, um, but thanks so much for your patience and your generosity. If anybody has, you know, if there are comments, questions, um, vituperative points of debate from frenemies from Facebook, um, anyone? Thoughts? Yes, sir. I realize in advance this is probably going to be unfair, but the timing of it is just too much to pass up. Yeah. I'm hoping that you have some kind of comment about the poor fool in Florida who was shot dead while eating the face of a man under a highway overpass. I have been... I have not heard of this. Tell me all about it. I've been in a media blackout in East Lake Chula Vista, surrounded by my relatives, who are who are circling the wagons around their gated compound for for fear that the Trayvons of the world are on the march, skittles and backpacks at the ready. So, uh, so please enlighten me. Well, it started out as a, on a local Florida television news right. program, and now it's on Boing Boing, right? Okay. A couple days ago, three days ago, four days ago, some guy, some, somebody called the cops in Florida saying that somebody naked under an overpass is, seems to be accosting someone, or I'm, I'm probably getting this wrong. The cops show up. Some naked man is literally, uh, has accosted somebody and, and subdued them and is eating his face. And he's, and he's naked. The cops apparently, according to the news, have to shoot the guy multiple times to get him to stop eating the guy's face. Um, of course, the question that arises is why couldn't they taser him and drag him right. away? But they're Florida cops, so they shoot the guy to death. But apparently, it takes multiple shots to kill the guy, and he doesn't acknowledge them as they're like, please step away from the man, right? right. He continues to eat the guy's face until they kill him. And then, of course, the Florida cops are now blaming him on bad LSD, which. I can guarantee you there's no such thing as that would cause somebody to eat somebody's face. Not speaking from experience or anything. <laughs> but uh, it has nothing to do with what you've been talking about. It's terribly unfair of me to bring this up, but it's just so apropos that I was hoping you might have something to say about it. But since you haven't heard about it, then we can forget it and you can move on. It's away. great, though. It's like a quick-fire challenge for semioticians, you know. It's like, you know... <laughs> You've got a news story, and you know, copy the latest Zizek book. Go nuts, you know. Um, unfortunately, I can't rise to that challenge. I'll have to mull it over. But um, it really does sound extraordinary. I thought the punchline was going to be, of course, that he rose again after being riddled by bullets, and you know. It's already insane enough. Yeah. yeah to make the news a lot lately, but I guess I was curious to know about. I mean, his 
Has there been more zombie fiction recently since the collapse in 2008 than, say, any other time? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's at an all-time high. There's been a really notable upspike. Now, as, as people who, you know, are reflexively irritated by thinkers, and there is a demographic for whom all thinking is overthinking. Um, you know, inevitably there's at least one person who points out that, you know, this is a media meme and that Hollywood, you know, has one idea a year and everyone runs with it and therefore, of course, it's all just kind of copycatism. You know, it's sort of intellectual Xeroxing. Um, that point notwithstanding, I mean, memes that don't really strike a responsive chord with the cultural unconscious tend to go nowhere. They tend to peter out pretty quickly. And it seems to me that this the zombie trope is really spreading like kudzu, you know, through the grasslands of the American unconscious. It seems to be somewhat unstoppable. And now Colson Whitehead at the New Yorker has written a book about zombies in Sag Harbor, which of course, you know, at the tip of Long Island and the Hamptons, for those of you not familiar with uh, New York geography, um, you know, which of course is sort of a lacerating parody of the uh, sort of shambling, conscienceless, uh, you know, gazeless, wealthy, um, the idea of zombies overrunning Sag Harbor came as a surprise to no Brooklynite, of course, you know, uh, <laughs> to the New York's underclasses. Um, but I think that, yes, I think that, that it really does seem to be tuned to the fundamental frequency of the age, you know, and consequently there is an incredible efflorescence of this pulp stuff. Uh, you know, both highbrow, middlebrow, and lowbrow. I mean, there's a zombie flavor for every taste profile, you know. It's kind of interesting. What's yeah. The, the Colson Whitehead book, you know. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's all, you know, he's, uh, as a prose stylist, you know, he's clearly playing to the, not exactly the Cynthia Ozick, you know, element, but, you know, but it's sort of Tom Wolfian level of, you know. What's that? A little anti-intellectual. Right, but it's, but no, yeah, you sort of have your brains and eat them too. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, yes sir. Uh, have you heard from any of these white supremacist guys? We know the book's out, you're, you're pretty accessible via Twitter and, and Facebook yeah. and whatever. Well, I actually invested in the Annihilator and sleep with that under my pillow, so, yeah. Um, and, and although I weigh in at, you know, 50 stone soaking wet, I'm actually a quadruple black belt in mixed martial arts. No, that's a complete poppycock. Um, but no, actually, I tiptoed back to the board, and one of them had discovered uh, an early version of this piece. Most of the pieces in this book have appeared in print or online publications. Many of the online pub versions are no longer available. Really putting paid to the idea that you know once something is chiseled in the ectoplasm of the web, it hangs there forever. I mean, in point of fact, things succumb to link rot faster than you know and vanish for all time, you know. So this idea that we can just feed all of our libraries into the shredder now and digitize everything is sort of worrisome to the unreconstructed Gutenbergians among us. Um, but um, I tiptoed back to that board and uh, I was going to also just say, you know, to make sure everyone knows he's getting, he or she is getting his uh, entertainment bang for the buck, all of the essays in this are vastly expanded from their original version version. So even if you're some stalkerish fanboy who's read every one of them, you should still buy the book. Um, but in any event, um, I tiptoed back to the discussion board and it, it was at least mildly marrow freezing to note that a few of these characters had said, uh, oh, this, you know, Marxist wussy has been prancing among us and, you know, thank God for Google Maps, you know. <laughs> um, other comments? Yes. Have done what? Rolled back civil rights. Rolled back civil rights. And I heard an announcement today that the Catholic Church has decided nuns are reading dangerous feminists. Um, and, and, the, and then told basically, stop reading this, stop educating yourselves, or, or leave. So, I, you know, I'm trying to figure out, I don't see any femtel figures or a woman being, um, I, I sort of see an emerging sameness of sort of more being decategorized. 
organizing tool to become one thing. I'm just wondering if you can explore the idea of this kind of unisex notion that we're being encouraged towards and, and how women are the fallout in that process. Could you explore that for me? Well, I'd be happy to, but I, and, and please don't take this as, as flip or supercilious or too pointed, but I'd be curious to know how you would create a linkage between that and zombies, which is what we are discussing. Or, or is there no link at all? Historically in these economies, women always lose out. And I just don't see it, uh, so I'm wondering how subversively it's happening. Um, well, I'm having some difficulty grasping the point of argument, but I'll I'll try to spin a line of connection between that and the theme of the evening and simply say that, um, you know, zombie gender seems almost entirely irrelevant in the zombie mythos. So, for example, in how many of you are either avid fans of or have at least occasionally seen the AMC series The Walking Dead? Okay. All right. All right, some of you, not not as many as I'd expected, because it is immensely popular. Uh, and to redeem yourselves, you all have to just rush straight home and watch the first season. Um, but in any event, it's quite well done, and the graphic novel on which it's based, I I dare say, is even more intelligent. And what makes it so interesting is it really is a political science class. It's a meditation on different philosophies of governance, and not there isn't a strict one-to-one -one homology, you know, but one character more or less seems to embrace a kind of medieval might is right, almost feudal kind of a, he's a sort of an alpha, he's really a, an apex predator, alpha male, much given to you know threat displays, and uh, he clearly believes society would be better off if it were just ruled by brute force. There's um, a guy who is uh, almost a sort of a Talmudic scholar and a keeper of the raveled remnants of society's notions of ethos and a legal framework and a moral code. Of course, he's picked off, you know. Um, but in there, you know, and then there are, there, there are, you know, squishy liberals who question their liberalism and go over to the dark side and end up heavily armed uh, because they realize that, you know, this is, uh, you know, a moment when nice, nice guys finish last, quite literally, at the end of somebody's elementary tract, you know. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, you can view it through the prism of political science. And what I was, all of this comes around to your question, which is that, so this film, I would argue the series, contributes to popular culture the kind of lingua franca of the zombie mythos. Increasingly when people think about zombies or talk about them, it's this movie and maybe this series and maybe arguably um, the video game Left for Dead. Um, but the narrative isn't nearly as elaborated in the video game because it is after all about taking your boomstick and popping zombies in the skull. Um, so in the TV series, gender doesn't really seem to matter matter, uh, whether the zombies are female or not, there's certainly, they're, it's fascinating because for once, women aren't sexualized. They're just necrotic, rotting flesh. And I think there's an old, there's an old Buddhist proverb, or some, I'm, and I'm not well versed in Buddhism, but um, I was reading um, Tale of Genji or the Pillow Book of Shonagon or something the other day, and there's, there's a reference to the medieval Japanese belief that no matter how beautiful the woman is, you know, she'll be food for worms one day, right? And, this, and the sort of um, embodiment of the zombie sort of literalizes that notion. Now what's very interesting about the zombie myth, which I didn't mention in this essay, is that the zombie of all monsters is a, the only monster, to the best of my knowledge, who is plural. The zombie's fundamental identity is the crowd. And it's very interesting because we live in an age that fetishizes the crowd, for which the crowd is sort of a totemic or talismanic image, right? There's a book, The Wisdom of Crowds, by James Surowiecki. Wikipedia is all about the wisdom of crowds. The notion increasingly among, you know, corporate theorists of social media is that no one knows everything, but every 
everybody in the room knows, knows something. And there's this sort of fetishization of the hive mind, the collective consciousness. This is really fascinating if you look at the history of these tropes, because there's crowds, there's mobs, there's masses, and they're not at all synonymous. You know, the masses, the 1920s, 30s, and, you know, Marxist leftist trope familiar from Adorno, Horkheimer, has really fallen out of favor. Nobody talks about, you know, the mass of Americans as the masses. And around the turn of the century, Victorians referred to them as the million. Okay, and, the, and that was sort of metonymic of many, many, many. Um, then, of course, a mob is a wise crowd that has lost its mind. You know, a flash mob of wilding kids in inner city Philadelphia or whatever, right? But then people like Howard Rheingold, the digital culture theorist, wrote a book called um, Smart Mobs, meaning for mobile applications and individuals using them. So this, there's a real cultural contest of narratives, a war of stories over are mobs and crowds and masses good or bad? You go back to the late 19th century, there's an absolute terror of masses because of revolution, because of the specter of communism and socialism stalking Europe, right? And, and sort of post-traumatic memories of the French and American revolution. So conservatives have always been very phobic, you know, that a little too much democracy will swiftly escalate into a reign of terror, mob violence, right? The mob's demanding too much. So I find it kind of fascinating that at a moment when the crowd, the virtues of the crowd, uh, the wisdom of crowds are being extolled by the theologians of managerial culture, guys like James Searle Wiki writing the business pages, the New Yorker, you have this doppelganger image, right? This carnival funhouse perversion of that sort of theory, uh, which is the zombies as sort of the horror of social networking, you know, the, the sort of god-awful gregariousness of our moment, you know, people can't even sit down to a bowl of fall you know, without photographing the fucking thing and upload tweeting about it while the food gets cold. I mean, this is the moment where the signifying monkey, you know, the ape, you know, with Twitter and Tumblr and, and Facebook, you know, really completely loses his mind. I mean, we're gregarious by nature, and now we're just always on, you know. Our lives are turned inside out, and each one of us stars in his own reality TV drama 24-7. And I think in some ways, that's another story, the zombie myth is telling you, the horror of, of this collectivism, that we are numerous now, that we only exist when all of our devices are switched on and we're part of the mass, you know. And you see people sitting alone, you know, on subways and so forth in New York. Once upon a time, they might have been reading or incalculably, unimaginably, they might have just been thinking, right? And now every spare second is filled with, you know, video games and cell phones or checking the cell phone or tweeting or emailing or whatever. And the, the horror of being alone with your own thoughts you know, and the, the tick, tick, tick of a spider walking around the empty ceiling of your skull, you know, it's unimaginable to most people. And I think the zombie myth is partly about that, too. And I think we should probably wrap it up, given how... Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.